Um, this morning, we are starting a new 10-week series on discipleship. And we have Adam Heather speaking to us. Many of you will know Adam. Adam uh, leads the evening service with uh, his wife, Hannah, who is sat beside him. And he is also uh, the, uh, the operations director for 24-7 prayer. Um, he, what he said at the, the first service was just phenomenal, really challenging and really inspiring. So I can't wait to hear it again. Adam, over to you. Well, good morning. Sorry, just get myself all set up here, ready to go. So, new term, new academic year. I hope you've all come back from hopefully what is a kind of restful chance over the summer to reflect and take pause. And here we are, starting in September, back in the electric theatre, ready to start our new series, 10 Tough Talks. You say that three times quickly with me. Ten tough talks, ten tough talks, ten tough talks. If you forget it, it will probably be in big, intimidating letters behind me for the rest of the talk. So just look up there. To be honest, I'm really excited about this series. Discipleship has been something that has always been really championed in the churches that I've been in ever since I was a young man. And I know that my life has been incredibly blessed by both having people investing into my life and also having the opportunity to form discipleship relationships with my friends and also the chance to invest into younger people. And so as the team that gets together to look at, you know, what is it that we're going to teach in the new term, um, we decided on this, a discipleship series. You know, disciple simply means learner. And kind of implicit in it is the idea that you would live and learn from someone with such intensity that eventually you would begin to think and act and live exactly like they do. And many of you will know my wife. She runs the vision course for 24-7 Prayer. If you don't know what that is, it's basically a five-month discipleship course. Uh, they spend three months with us here at 24-7 and serving Emmaus, and then they go and do six weeks of mission out in Ibiza or somewhere like that. And basically, their rhythm is that on Mondays and Tuesdays while they're here, they get theology lectures, and then the rest of the week, they're kind of serving the church and getting involved in the life of the church and basically, in the last term, it's been running for about five courses now, in the last term, the person who normally teaches on discipleship dropped out. And so Hannah was like, oh, Adam, you'll do that, won't you? You know, marriage. Um, and, you know, I actually, like, I sat down and thought, I am so passionate about this topic. But the truth is, how do you kind of distill it down to an hour and a half? So I did something that I'd never done before. And I remembered there's quite a few times that Jesus uses the kind of the term discipleship, right? And he'll say something like, if you are going to be my disciple, you will have to. Or people will know you're my disciple if you. So I thought what I'll do is I'll look that up and I'll see what does Jesus define discipleship as? And the truth is that it turns out he uses the phrase about 10 times in 10 different contexts. And actually, we get this really interesting array of different things. Everything from the verses we know and love, like, abide in my word and you'll be my disciple, to some really, really tough ones, like, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and follow me. And so over these next 10 weeks, we're going to kind of be leaning into some of these difficult verses because... 
You know, as someone said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that scare me. It's the parts that I do understand. You know, and we don't want to become kind of a complacent community. We want to lean into these difficult verses and think, what does it mean to really, truly be a disciple and follow Jesus? I wonder if you would just take literally 20 seconds and to the person next to you, I want you to think about what does it mean to be a Christian? If I was to ask the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? First thing that pops into your head, just turn to your neighbor and tell them, this is what I think it means. Okay, brilliant. Bring those conversations to a close. Okay, I would do a poll about now and sort of find out what everyone said, but I kind of really want to make a point, so I'm hoping that you all said one thing, and I've got the mic, so I'm just going to assume you all said this thing, okay? I think that if you were to ask most people, what does it mean to be a Christian, they would say something around, it means that you believe in Jesus Christ, right? Hands up if you said that. All of you, amazing. Such a strong point. But the truth is, actually, the term Christian only turns up in the Bible three times. The first time we see it isn't all the way until Acts 11. Almost unanimously, every other time, the expression used is to follow Jesus. In fact, we see that expression 261 times. I can see a few people are like, hey, I said that, you know, me. But it's true follower of Jesus. And a lot of you may be thinking, actually, that just sounds like semantics, right? Like, yeah, believe and follow. But the truth is there's a really different, there's a real difference between, there's plenty of things in my life that I believe that don't affect me on a day-to-day basis. But the truth is to follow something means that I have to reshape my whole life around that thing. And we're called to be follower of Jesus. John Piper who many of you will know, says it really brilliantly. And he says, we can be so guilty nowadays of forming almost the two stages of salvation. The first thing that people do is they come, they encounter Jesus, and they begin to believe in him, right? And they have that encounter, and it's great. And then through a process of like self-reflection, they decide over time whether or not they want to embark on this journey, and then they become a disciple. That That kind of dichotomy wouldn't have made any sense to the New Testament church. To become a Christian, to believe in Jesus, meant to follow him, to reorientate your life around him. And this is important, not just for us as individuals, but for us as a community together. It's interesting, if you look at history, we have seen a communist regime grow up in two really specific places, Russia and China. And under both of these regimes, the the government decided that it wanted to eradicate the church. Right? And it did it in a very simple way. It attacked the cathedrals, the point where they gather, and it attacked the priests, the leaders and the teachers. In Russia, their faith was built a lot around these structures. And so as soon as the government came, demolished those and got rid of those, you see over a process of years, the church really dies out. And now in Russia, there isn't much of a thriving church there. 
Whereas in China, they did the exact same thing because it's all they really can do. They attack the cathedrals and they attack the priests. But in China, the Christian faith was based around the empowerment of the individual believer to follow Jesus together as a community, helping and training each other in what it means to follow Jesus. And so as soon as they get rid of the cathedrals and the priests, they find that still this church is growing and thriving. In fact, it's growing faster than anywhere else in the world. And now it is 70 million strong, a community of believers committed to discipling one another, growing in their faith with Jesus and following him together. Right? We want to be a community that is empowered to disciple one another and do this journey of faith together. And so we're going to look over these next 10 weeks at what does it mean to be a disciple. We want to know what it means to Jesus to be a disciple and then we want to use that knowledge to reorientate our lives and to help others do the same. So if you would please turn with me in the Bible to Matthew 4. Verse 18. Lord Jesus, would you be with us this morning? Lord, we don't just want to hear your word, but we want to see you and we want to be transformed by it, God. Would you be with us today? Would your wisdom be here? We love you, Jesus. Amen. Okay. Matthew 4, 18. I'm reading from the ESV. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, being Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. Okay, so this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's quite early on in his days. He's just come out of the wilderness and his baptism. And basically, if you're not familiar with the stories in the Bible, what Jesus is going to do, he's going to gather 12 young men around him, and they're going to be in a circle of people that he's going to invest into. Peter, at this point, is probably 21. He's probably the oldest of the eventual 12 disciples, and because of that, he's the leader. He obviously is, as you've heard, a fisherman, working man, earning a living. And Jesus comes along and says, follow me. This, in the day, wouldn't have been hugely unusual, right? Like, Jesus was a rabbi. There was plenty of rabbis. And what a rabbi would do is that they would call a group of young men to come and follow them. And the basic idea is that they would follow them, and they would begin to learn from them, learn the way that they understood God, the way that they understood the world, the experiences they have. And then the idea is that once the rabbi passed on, the disciple would then take on the teaching. And this is simply what's happening with Peter, right? Jesus is saying... Come and follow me. Learn from me. Understand the way that I see the world. And let me teach you about God's kingdom. Isn't it interesting that Jesus has been given the assignment of starting God's movement of his kingdom to the four corners of the globe. And his master plan, his great strategy, is to invest heavily in 12 teenagers. Right? We don't really 
trust teenagers to do very much at all. And Jesus is like, these are the people who are going to take my message to the four corners of the globe. But what was Peter getting himself in for? He probably didn't know it at this point that he followed Jesus. But over the course of the next three years, this process of discipleship, of following Jesus, of learning to see the way he sees the world, Jesus is going to basically challenge every single one of Peter's paradigms. Family, money, priorities, social norms, law, geography, power, racism, sexism, miracles... When you embark upon this journey of discipleship, Jesus just shakes everything up. To me, it's like this picture of, you know when you buy a pack of like playing cards and you open them up and for some reason they always pack them in like two, three, four, five, six, seven, like they're in order, right? And you're like, no game needs these cards in order. And so you spend like the first 20 minutes just trying to like shuffle them up and then someone still gets Jack, Queen, King, Ace and thinks they're awesome. To me, one time we bought a new pack of playing cards and someone decided to kind of get rid of all of that and they just grabbed the cards and threw them up in the air. They went everywhere and they were like, look, no, they're not in order. And I was like, great, I'm not sure that is the quickest way to do this, but awesome. But isn't that what Jesus comes and does, right? We think that we've got all of our life in order, all in suits. And Jesus just comes along and he grabs it and he like throws it up in the air. And this process for Peter must have been wonderful. You know, he's learning from the Son of God. But I can guarantee you it was uncomfortable. There are times when, you know, we look at things that Jesus does and we think, you know, they're amazing, but we don't really stop and think about this group of teenagers that have had to follow him. Let's just take an ordinary day. Say the day when Jesus goes and meets the woman at the well in Samaria. Like, you need to understand that most Jewish people, like Jesus and the disciples, they would have walked 50 miles the long way so that they didn't have to go through Samaria. So deeply entrenched in their culture was this sort of racism and bigotry that said that those people are half-breeds and we have nothing to do with them. But if you read the Bible, Jesus says to his disciples, I have to go to Samaria I can imagine the disciples following him would have been like, guys, does Jesus know where we're going? Like, is he aware of where we're going right now? And he, like, they walk into Samaria and they walk up to this well and Jesus turns around to them and says, guys, go and get me some lunch. And we don't think about that bit of the story, but think about that level of racism and these guys are walking and it would have been like, you know, they're walking all huddled together for safety and they've been like, excuse me, can I buy some lunch? And they're like, we don't sell to your kind here. Oh, okay, okay. Um, Can we buy some lunch? No, get out of here. And then they walk back to Jesus. And not only is Jesus in Samaria, but he's talking to a woman. And not even a well-respected woman, a woman who is outcast from her own community. And they're walking towards him and thinking, Jesus, what are you doing? And you know, the the hard thing is they get all the way to Jesus and he says, I have food you know nothing about. They must be like, what? Why did you send us? But the truth was for Jesus, it was nothing to do with lunch. It was everything to breaking these paradigms that weren't like the way that he thought. Right, like he's exposing them to things that are uncomfortable because he's trying to change the way that they see the world to be more 
like the kingdom. I want to... I want to make a point because I think that so often when we think about discipleship, our mind goes to a certain place. And if we're honest, it's quite a defensive place, right? Our discipleship looks a lot like purity groups and accountability groups and D groups where we get together and say, how's life? What are you struggling with? What temptations have been knocking on your door? And all of that stuff's great. Like It's awesome and it's naive not to put those structures in place. I am all for them. But the truth is is that Jesus said that the kingdom of God was advancing and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. When did our discipleship become so cautious? Right? And so what would it look like for our discipleship to stop being about surviving culture and remember that Jesus was always teaching about shaping culture? Alan Scott, a great friend of 24-7 who leads like a massive growing church in Ireland. He said about this topic, he said, we can't continue to train disciples to think defensively and be mystified when they fail to live generously, creatively, and expansively. Or to say it another way, when did discipleship become so concerned with what God says not to do that we forget the opportunity for influence that God has entrusted to us? In this city... Thousands of students will be arriving over the next month. You know, many of them will be Christians. I wonder how many of the kind of frequency of conversations they've been having is one of like, be really careful when you get there. You know, this is the place where people lose their faith. Be careful, this is the place you can get caught up in alcohol. Be careful, this is the place you might lose your virginity. Be really careful. And all that stuff's good and it's wise to be aware of it. But why aren't we telling our students, this is an opportunity for you to go and save your campus for Christ. This is an opportunity for you to befriend someone who's been lonely their whole life and invite them into a family. This is an opportunity for you to get discipled and to grow in your calling. Right? We don't want our, like our discipleship doesn't want to be so defensive. The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world, Jesus said. I love the fact that when Jesus walks up to Peter, he doesn't say, follow me and I'll make you a good man. He doesn't say, I'll make you a holy man. He doesn't say, I'll make you a man of character. He doesn't say any of that. What he says is, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. You know, isn't it interesting? I bet you there's some people here that Jesus has promised things over your life and you don't really understand how he's going to get you from here to there. I love that Peter's response isn't, oh, okay, God, I mean, that sounds like a bit of a leadership role you're giving me there and I'm just sort of this simple fisherman and so I will follow you but only if you can show me this sort of like five-point strategy, right? Then I'll understand because at the moment I don't really understand how I'm going to go from here to there. He didn't say any of that. He just had this posture of faith and knew that all he needed to do in that moment was to follow Jesus. How many of you are carrying promises that you feel like God has said that you're going to do this or accomplish this, but you have no idea how you're going to get from here to the promise? And so you're asking God for a strategy before you're willing to start walking, and he's saying, I'm actually really good at creating things. 
It's been doing it literally since the beginning of time. I mean, it's what I do. Just trust me. I don't need your help with, your, with the strategy. I've got the strategy. Just follow me. Give me your life. Follow me. C.S. Lewis has this beautiful way about, of talking about discipleship. He talks about salvation as coming awake to a new life, right? And he says that discipleship is the intentional choices to try and stay awake. Isn't that nice? But he talks and he warns about those things in life that like to try and take our eyes off of Jesus. You know, those things that feel incredibly important, but when compared to eternal things, they're not. And he refers to these things as the shadow lands, right? The things that masquerade as important in life, you know, stock markets and race cars and fine cuisine, responsibility and power and all of these things that feel like they're really important, but the truth is they're just shadow lands. And the thing is, is that it isn't so much about trying to make sure you don't look at those things. It's about realizing that when you solely fix your eyes on Jesus, those things begin to fall away, right? It's not so much about ignoring one thing as it is as pursuing another. But the truth is, one of the sobering things we find in the Bible is that loads of people appear, as Lewis would say, to get lost in the shadow lands. When Jesus says something that for them feels like too big a sacrifice, and they decide to not. John 6, 6, 6, John 6, 66. Many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Isn't that one of the saddest verses? Many of the disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You'll remember the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus and he says, what do I need to do to be perfect? And Jesus says, sell everything and follow me. And it says that he left sad. He left sad. And then Jesus turns around to his disciples and he says, it's so hard for these guys. So hard for them. All the responsibility, all the decisions, they've become so entrenched in the shadow lands that they can't see what's really important. So we want to be like turning our eyes to Jesus, right? And there's other people, like in Luke 9, there's an account of three people that come to Jesus and all have the opportunity to follow him. Jesus says, follow me. And one of them says, first, let me go and bury my dad. Feels like a fair request. And Jesus is like, no, follow me now. Another one says, let me just go and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus is like, no, follow me now. And we know that Jesus cares about family, right? Family was his idea. We know that he cares about honoring your mother and father, right? That's in the Bible. But what he is saying is that this Christian walk only makes sense when he sits fully at the top of your priority list. Like, it's only going to make sense in that place. Tim Keller has this quote that just totally got me. Are we all doing okay? You realize it's quite heavy. Ten tough talks, ten tough talks, ten tough talks. Great. Tim Keller says... We are willing to give things up. We just don't want to give up the right to determine what those things are. Oh. We are willing to give things up. We just don't want to give up the right to determine what those things are. Ah, oh, Tim, come on now. 
But the truth is, is that there is a real cost to discipleship. Like, Jesus is kind, and he's gracious, and he's gentle, but he is clear. Follow me, obey me, I am Lord. But like our 21st century thinking, like, so struggles with that. How many of you have been looking for your new guide and you've seen that we've like put in a new page that we've called our values? Anyone looked at that? So basically, like the vision of the church is always the same, and it's huge. We want to see God's kingdom come to every area of society in Guildford, Surrey, Europe, and beyond. Right? That's the vision. That's what we're about, and we don't want to stop until we see that happen. But our values is the way that we go about expressing that, and we don't feel like that ever changes. And so over the summer, the team did a bit of work about distilling down what do those look like. And we came up with these three things. Pray, play, and obey. Pray, play, and obey. And um, you may have heard that because the evening service is growing, we are moving from St. Mary's to Founders. And so over the summer, we wanted to do a bit of work into making Founders look really nice. So I thought, let's get some banners up that show our values. So they're like three meters high. I stand up there, and the first one's like, pray, P-R-A-Y. I'm like, great, pray, yeah. Then P-L-A-Y, and I'm like, great, amazing. And then it comes to, like, obey, and I'm like, ooh. You know, like, something, like, squirms inside of me a little bit, and I'm like, ooh, that feels a bit intense. You know, could we use a different word? Could we do something else? Like, what if people come in and see obey? Like, we hate the idea that we're not masters of our own universe, but the truth is the Bible's really clear. We're always serving something. We're always serving something. We just want to choose that person to be Jesus. I'm a huge Man United fan, and they recently, like, they're sponsored by Adidas, and so for the beginning of the season, my Twitter feed is just, like, full of Man United stuff, right? And I love it. Um, But Adidas's new slogan is, first never follows. First never follows. Obey, O-B-E-Y, follow me, obey me. You know, it's like it's, it's challenging. And we don't want to be mistaken into thinking that the call, just because Jesus isn't here physically anymore, is any less. Right, for like Peter and James and John and these guys, like it was clear, Jesus was there. He literally stood at the side of their boat and said, leave that and follow me. And Jesus isn't here, like, in the flesh anymore. But I don't want to reduce it down to being anything less than the sacrifice and the commitment that he called of those people. Because it's the same. And so to me, that looks like, when was the last time that following Jesus made me feel uncomfortable? Like, when did he last ask me to do something risky? When did I last read the scriptures and it made me change my actions, like, really change? When was the last time I woke up early to pray? Or how about this one? Do you still think the same this year as you did last year? Because I'm not sure that you should. If Jesus is constantly leading us into this truth, we've got to be shaking up our paradigms, right? I want God to be picking up my pack of cards and throwing it in the air. Bonhoeffer, in his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, says... When Jesus calls a man, he bids him, come and die. But that's like super challenging. 
I was um, kind of pondering this yesterday, and I was parking the car, and Hannah, my wife, we've got two cars. One is like my car. I mean, they're both our cars because we're married, but like one's like my car, and one's like her little car. But she had gone on like a long drive, and so she'd taken the bigger car, and so I was driving around this like little micro. And we don't have a parking space at our house, and so we park in a car park, like around the corner in Godalming. Godalming's a beautiful place, come and visit. And so I was driving into this car park, and you know when someone like drives their big SUV 4x4, and they park it like on the white line, and you're like, you are so selfish. You know, you get that feeling and this like righteous angle wells up inside of you. And so like this car park is like really busy and I'm driving my little car and I'm like, you know what? I can squeeze into there. It's going to make it really hard for them to get out, but I don't care. So I like pull in into my space. I'm perfectly parked, but like we're really close, but it's fine because their driver's door's there, then my driver's door's over here and I don't have a passenger. So I've got plenty of room to get in and out, but they don't. And I'm like, this will show them. And I realize I'm going through all of this thing and I turn off the engine And just at that moment, I feel like the Holy Spirit says, Adam, I want you to reverse out and park further over to the right. And I'm like, Jesus, it's so selfish. Don't you see that? And he's like, Adam, I want you to do this. And I sit there and I think about, you know, there's cars going, it's an awkward thing, and everyone's going to think that I'm leaving and I'm not leaving. And I'm like, oh, am I going to do this? But you know what I realized? 21 years ago when I sat on my bed and I encountered Jesus and I found out everything that he'd done for me, I made that decision then. It's not about the decision I made yesterday. It's about the decision I made 21 years ago when I said, Jesus, I'll follow you. Here's my life. I'm going to put it on the altar. And so I did it. And it was super annoying. Everyone thought I was leaving and had to be like, sorry, and pull back in. And it's like a stupid small example, right? But our life is made of moments, you know? Our life is full of days and months, and our days and months are full of hours and half hours, and our hours and half hours are full of moments. And we want to follow Jesus in every one of those moments. As I was reading over this passage, I had this kind of sobering thought, and I was like, Peter wasn't forced to follow Jesus. Like, that's not what Jesus did, right? He didn't force him to follow him. He simply stood by the side of his boat and said, Jesus, said, Peter. Didn't talk about himself in the third person. Peter, will you follow me? And I started thinking through the internal battle that Peter must have gone through right then. You know, like he had his boat, he had his business. He probably, like, probably had his house of his nice, comfortable bed. And this man is saying, I want you to leave all that right now and come and follow me. I wonder what feels scarier to you right now. The fact that Jesus might come and stand beside your boat and say, follow me. Or the fact that you might have the opportunity to say no. Like, which feels more scary? Like, yeah, I am scared that Jesus is going to call me to go places that make me feel risk and uncomfortable and, you know, out of my comfort zone, all of those things. I'm even more scared that I might say no. Are you following Jesus? I'm not asking if you know him. I'm not asking if you're saved. I'm saying, are you following him? Are you placing your life on the altar and letting him reorganize it? Are your finances his? Is your geography his? Are your priorities his? Is your career his? 
because he is standing beside your bed. Beside your bed? Sorry, a second time. Standing beside your boat, and he's saying, let me make something of you. The truth is, to know Jesus as saviour is a guarantee you'll live forever. We know that. But to follow Jesus as king is a guarantee that you're going to live for something. Right? To know Jesus means you'll live forever. But to follow Jesus, to really follow him, means that he's going to make something of you. I don't want to get to the end of my life and think back over many days in my comfortable bed, many good, comfortable nights sleep, but realized that so many times I didn't follow Jesus when he asked. There's this really beautiful part of the Old Testament where it talks about David. And you know, David was a man after God's own heart. Right? So we want to pay attention to the way that he thinks and he acts. And so David has like messed up big time messed up. It's in 2 Samuel 24, 24. And the prophet Gad comes to David and he says, David, you messed up. What God is asking you to do is you need to go and buy this specific piece of land and you need to sacrifice it, sacrifice on it, right? And so David, soft-hearted as he is, he goes and he finds the person who owns the land and he says, I want to buy this exact plot. And the guy's like, I mean, David, you're the king. You could just have it. And David said, and I love this, he said, no, I will pay full price. Far be it from me to give God something that costs me nothing. Far be it from me to give God something that costs me nothing. Like, I love stories of people going, like Beth and Eden, Incredible, laying everything on the altar, saying, God, I feel your call and I'm moving my whole family to Latin America. But the truth is, is like lots of us, that isn't our call. Lots of us have families and responsibilities and jobs and, you know, work in the city and all that stuff's good, right? Like if God's calling everyone to like leave culture, then how are we going to shape culture? Like his thing is go like leaven, spread out into the bread and like affect change. Like we're called to stay in culture. But even if the organization begins to feel a little restrictive, I don't want Jesus to become domesticated in my life, right? I love stories where things feel like they cost. I want my life and my following of Jesus, even in this season of being married and both of us working and having a nice flat above a flower shop, what does it look like to live risky and generously and uncomfortably for Jesus? A little while ago... um, Hannah was looking for places for some of the vision course students to live. And it's always, like, it's always a challenge trying to find rooms. And so the Brewer kids, Ed and Petra, felt like God asked them to share a room for that season so that someone could come and live in their room. I mean, what a beautiful act of discipleship. Far be it from me to give God something that cost me nothing. I wonder what it would look like if the mantra of this church was to every day wake up and say, today I don't want to give God something that didn't cost me anything. I wonder what we'd accomplish. What a beautiful community of discipleship. And so over these next nine weeks, and I'm going to be finishing in just a few minutes, over these next nine weeks we want to be leaning into these 
to these verses, to these sayings of Jesus that talk about what does it look like to be a disciple. But I want to encourage you that I think that we want to learn from Jesus, but we want to stand together, right? So I think that you need to have three levels of discipleship in your life. You want to be trying to sit under someone who's further along the journey than you are, a bit wiser than you, a bit more mature than you. Someone you can just get some time with and ask questions, ask them about their life, what did they do. Right, I remember when I was a young man, I used to just go up to people and say, would you mind if I just drove you? Where, where do you need to go next? I'll just drive you, just to get some time. Do you want me to carry your bags? Like, I just want to get time with you. I want to learn from you. And then we want to have like this, like this one. Then we want to have like this one, which is where our like, friends and the people that we're journeying is together. Right? We want our friendships to be one where we champion one another. These discipleship ones where we help each other to follow Jesus together. Me and Mike Crown and John Radmore, who you'll know, we meet up at Lorenzo's Greasy Spoon at 7 o'clock in the morning on a Thursday. And we just ask each other difficult questions. Right, like, what did you do this week that was risky? Who did you tell about Jesus this week? Did you read the Bible this week? What's God saying to you? How are you responding to that? You know, like, I love the fact that people are going to be asking me those questions all the time. It's really easy to hide when no one asks you a question. It's really hard when someone's like, boom. But I want that, right? And I want to be leaning on their wisdom. Like, I know that for me to do everything that I feel like God's calling me to do, I need the support of people from around here. I need Bill's wisdom. I need Pete's wisdom. I need Mike's encouragement. Right? Like, I need that in my life. God's calling me, and each one of you, I think, to something that's so much bigger than yourself. And so that's why he puts us in communities, and he says, run together. And then you want to have people, you want to be making time for people who want to learn from you, right? Like the next generation, we raise them up. Jesus' master plan, he invested super heavily into 12 teenagers, 11 of whom went off to change the world. If I was to divide up my week last week and I was to give them a portion, how much of it did I spend encouraging and giving wisdom to younger people? Probably not very much, but it was Jesus' plan. It's interesting that if you learn, a, um, if you look at research about how we best learn as human beings, the truth is our best learning model is to experience something and then have to go and teach it. And then we have a like, retention rate at like 90%. Actually, the truth is like this model of one person talking and lots of people listening is actually bad. Like, it's one of the worst ways in which we learn. And I'm like all for the sermon. Like, the sermon is so good. Obviously, like, I care about it. I think it's important. But the truth is, is that we are not sermon deficient, right? We are sermon-saturated people. The truth is, is like, how does that translate what we learn into the way that we live on a Monday morning? And it's like that thing of, like, together, being a community together. And so over the next nine weeks, I wonder what it would look like Ask the Holy Spirit who he might be asking you to journey with, who might be asking you to get time with, who might he asking, be asking you to give time to. How are we going to do this discipleship thing together, empowered as a community, leaning on one another, learning from one another, championing one another to see God's kingdom come to every corner of Guildford? I'm just going to pray and I'm going to hand back. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for being here with us. Lord Jesus, we don't want to be complacent with this. We want to look you full in the face and we want to follow you. Thank you that you are standing beside our boat and you are bidding us to come and follow you. God, we want to give you our lives, costly as it is, and say, have your way, Jesus.
Amen.